0: Thank you Oh, welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at... Uh, the Well, this will be the second part of my review of Our Friends from Frollox 8. This book's actually divided into parts, so I don't want to confuse you. I'll be looking specifically at chapters 8 through through 17. I believe it's 17. No, it's t- through 16. Uh, 8 through through 16 will be um, what we're going to look at in this, this episode. So in the first... Um, part uh, of of my review we we learned about this dystopia that this novel set on and where humanity is basically being controlled by a small population a few thousand of uh, post-humans that are divided into two groups the new men who are like super smart because they have enhanced brains they have special nodules in their brain that make them really intelligent and then the the like the precogs and the psychics they're called the unusual so they compete for power within this government but they cooperate in keeping all the everyone else called the old men out of having any authority or power and it's kind of a immersion to a, a police state from there um, now we've met our everyman character nick appleton who is a tire regroover, and he's been, gets dragged into the movement after he hears that one of the captured leaders of the movement uh, cordon who writes a lot of the literature that people consume has been, um, is going to be executed. He also found out that his son has failed, once again, the civil service exam, despite him being apparently a very low level or uh, a new man or having new men capacities, but he doesn't pass the exam. So his, his family has no upward mobility. And so his boss converts him to the movement, takes him to a house selling uh, literature, uh, the Cordonite literature that helps promote the movement. Uh, while he's there, he gets um, uh, he saves uh, a young girl, a sixteen-year-old girl named Charlie, from her drunk uh, literature, coordinate literature pushing boyfriend, uh, and they they flee. And she needs a place to stay, and they decide to return to his his house. So this is a big moment for Nick because uh, previously he could, sit, you know, he's really getting committed to the movement now. By this girl is associated with. Uh, the underground movement called the Undermen. Uh, he's taken her to his his home. They have night literature in their car, and uh, and it might be a threat to his family and his relationship as well. So uh, he's taking a big step by bringing this young girl Charlie to his to his house. We have also learned that the government is is is. Re- facing many problems and we meet two governmental characters one is a new man called Barnes who heads the police and the other is essentially the president named um, William Graham who is unusual he's a very advanced psychic he's uh, got two things on his mind primarily one is the fact that uh, there's rumors that Provoni the head of the Undermen is going to be coming back with aliens to help them liberate the old men although it's not quite clear what form that will take yet but He did set off hoping to get help, and he'll probably come back. And um, he's also anxious about the fact that the new new men are developing ways to automate psychic abilities. It's called the Big Ear Project, and this, when completed, will basically read the minds of all the people on Earth, making the unusual, the psychic unusuals, unnecessary. So he's also got marital problems that he's trying to, to solve. So he's got all these things on his plate, um, and, and those are kind of the two plot lines that are going to come together over the course of, of the novel So we're going to pick up with chapter chapter nine and, and see where this novel takes us um, <clears throat> so um, chapter nine opens with Nick and Charlie finally you know finally arriving at the home having decided after thinking through their options that the only hope for them is to go back to, Nick's home and stay there a few days until Charlie's boyfriend calms down and she can go back. Um, he knocks on the door, Cleo, the wife of, of Nick, who's presented in various ways as a bit shrewish, uh, very paranoid, very much a follower of the rules, someone who's not going to be happy with a young dissident, under-man under uh, girl, who's pretty and a bit captivating, uh, staying in her house for a while. Um, but she opens the door and she sees these of course she has questions too just as any wife would have like what are you doing with this, this young girl and, and why do you want to um, stay there uh, this is what Dick writes about this Cleo pondered she has mixed feelings chaotic feelings she's a stranger he thought we don't know her we don't even know if she's telling the truth about her boyfriend suppose it's something else suppose the police are after her but Nick seems to like her he seems to trust her but if she's telling the truth of course we ought to let her stay here and then Cleo thought She certainly is pretty. Maybe that's why Nick wants her to stay here. Maybe he's got a She searched for the word, a special interest in her. If she wasn't so pretty, would he want to let her in to stay with us? But that doesn't sound like Nick, unless he was unaware of his true feelings. He knew he wanted to help the girl, but he didn't actually know why. So she shows some empathy and understanding of, of her husband, but obviously she's not too happy with the idea of her staying there. Um, now, she's able to discover pretty quickly that Charlie's not just a, a damsel in distress, but she's actually an under underman, and she's part of the movement. Um, now, at, now, they had just been questioned by the secret police. A, they, did, they passed a spot check just like the previous day. So that's, they think that they're safe for the short term from uh, state surveillance. Um, but still, once she's revealed that she's an underman, Cleo wants to kick, them, kick her out. And Nick threatens to go with Charlie if she indeed kicks her out. And that's what she does. Cleo kicks her out. And Nick follows her. So now the question is where to go. There's really only two places to go at this point. Well, maybe not even two. I mean, where to go? There, there are actually two, two things she has to worry about out there. There's Denny, who's still drunk and crazy and might hurt her. And that's the boyfriend. And then police. Do you go to the police? Um, or the police will come after them, I mean. So these are the two dangers that uh, they're facing. Charlie's also a very independent-minded person. She's not easily controlled. She's not one to take orders from from Nick or anyone else. And this is one of the ways that reasons Charlie is a fairly captivating figure. Philip Dick is really interested in these. Young female, pretty characters who have a bit of spunk and and independence. It's just, uh, you have a soft spot for them. They show up again and again in his his novels. Sometimes as villains, sometimes as as relatively um, heroic figures, as they do in this this novel. But finally, she suggests that they go to one of the printing presses. Uh, and one of, there's a big printing press that publishes coordinate literature in the middle of the city. And again, I, I want to say something I talked about in the last episode, which is the. The parallel between this printing industry and the underground underman movement with the drug trade, right? That cornet literature sold sort of like a drug in $5, $10 hits. People get addicted to it. It's illegal. So you have to go to special houses where there's 50 characters selling it. Um, you know, in fact, that's how they meet Charlie in the first place is they go to this house. Denny is the dealer. Charlie is the dealer's young girlfriend. They have... Uh, Printing press is in the middle of the city, which are basically the distribution nodes that produce it, just like drug dealers have their own distribution nodes, usually in the cities where they, they sell it. It's, it's all paralleling in the drug trade quite closely. But she, she says, let's go to this printing press. They'll keep us safe if, if we go there. It's in the middle of the city, right under the nose of the state. Now, we're going to learn later on that actually the state knows that the printing press is there and chooses not to act on it for, for various reasons. So um, in Chapter 10, they they are finally arrive at the at the printing press, and they're allowed inside after Charlie basically gives the secret codes, the secret uh, code words. And the guards, this is a very short chapter, by the way, the guards give the big news that has just come down um, to them, and that is they've got a message from Provoni. Provoni, who years ago had went off into space to try to find help, to help the underman movement, to save humanity from the domination of the post-humans. Um, but he's not been heard of for, for years. He's finally, he's sent a message and the message says he's coming home. Uh, so this is the big news that the guards leave them. Now, this is the end of, that's chapter 10. And that's the end of, of part one, uh, as Dick divided up, up, up the book. This one's in, in three parts. So that's, uh, so part one overall really introduces Nick, gets him into the Underman movement uh, we see the, the political situation, uh, the tensions within the state, and we have a, a turning point in which now the arrival of Provoni is going to mean a change for all our characters, for Nick, for Charlie, whose movement, Nick's now joined up with this movement, have a chance for success, and the government is facing, going to be facing its biggest threat yet. So um, part two of the, of the novel, chapter 11, begins with graham and barnes dealing with the news that provoney is coming back obviously whatever news that the printing press has got also the government uh, has has received and and they want to know basically they're questioning how to respond to this what's the proper way of dealing with the return of of and um some characters like barnes now barnes is a very interesting character he's the head of the police he wants to he wants to understand why people join the under Man movement, and he's very interested in Nick because Nick has been recently converted. But at the same time, he's very capable of being brutal and, and hard-headed. And his solution is maybe just really smash the printing presses. You know, we know where they are. We just bomb them. Um, Graham hesitates to to do that um, for for a variety of reasons, as we'll see. But there's a debate about how to respond amongst the government. Um, now, Graham seems to think that Provoni's power is a bit limited because he can be presented to the public as essentially a traitor to humanity, right? That he has gone and got help from another planet, from aliens. He doesn't really care about humanity. He's, he's in league with, with, with foreigners, essentially. Um, so he thinks that somehow maybe they can just use propaganda, the normal device, to, to make sure that even if he comes, he won't get support from the Underman. Movement or maybe the underband movement will fall away or is not as strong as they think. Bars, on their hand, realizes how strong it is and how, pot- how potential it has to convert people. By the way, I think this is the first time we get the actual name of the ship that Pravoni took out to space called the Great Dinosaur, which is a wonderful, meaningful name here. Uh, the Great Dinosaur, of course, the dinosaur being a throwback, an ancient thing, an evolutionary um, remnant, leftover Uh of course, that's what humans are. The old men are, are the evolutionary leftovers. They're the dinosaurs. But um, Graham says, well, we should just execute Corden. Uh, we can't deal with Provoni and Corden on Earth at the same time. Graham, um, though, doesn't want to bomb the printing presses. And the reason why is because he, he had worked in these printing presses when he was like a low-level agent. And he had a lot of friends in these printing presses. So grabs an interesting character as a villain because he, he does have a soft spot for you know, people he worked with in the past. Um, but this gets down to the real part of the question, which is how, what should the state uh, be like, right? And they even talk about Abraham Lincoln. And so Barnes says, this is a civil war we're fighting. During his time, Abraham Lincoln imprisoned hundreds upon hundreds of men without due process, and he's still remembered as the greatest of U.S. presidents. And then Graham responds, but he was always pardoning people. And you know, to how much give and take does a state need to function? A totalitarian state, and um, you know, Dick has never been comfortable with the totalitarian image of the state presented by a, a writer like George Orwell. For for him, states always had to be a little bit more flexible than that. And and we see that at work here: a state really trying to struggle to figure out how to respond to crises day to day that they're, they're not in control necessarily. The things are actually flowing around around them. And I, I think that's one of the interesting things about the way Dick presents states. Now, I realize he has this idea later on in his writing of the Black Iron Prison, and that, that comes up in the Vallis trilogy stuff. And yeah, maybe that's true in his later writings, but in his dystopias from earlier in his career all the way back to the 50s, the state is, is much more flaky than, than a Black Iron Prison, which is more of an image of a totalitarian state. So after leaving Graham and in, in Barnes and their debate about to bomb printing presses or to execute Corden or whatever, we, we, we finally get our first look at Provoni on his ship. Um, now Provoni is returning on the Great Dinosaur, but it's kind of engulfed by this alien called Morgo. And Morgo, you know, is, basically, is, is like a blob kind of alien that's engulfed the ship. Um, he's our friend from Frolox Eight, so he's a Froloxian is the way it's, it's pronounced. And Provoni doesn't have a lot of water, he's running out of supplies, he stinks, his clothes is all disheveled, um, and, but he's, he's coming back to Earth. Um, and he's having dreams, and Morgo watches his dreams and observes them, and, and talks to him about them during his waking hours. Now um, Pravoni also wonders if he's being a traitor, and, and Morgo can read his mind, so he can always respond instantly to what Provoni's thinking morgo says you have been called a traitor you've been called a savior i've examined every particle of your conscious self and there's no lusting after the vainglory of greatness you have made a difficult voyage with virtually no hope of success you have done it for one motive only to help your friends isn't it said in one of your books of wisdom if a man gives his life for his friend um and then Provoni said you can't complete the quotation why it's because they don't have a bible they they only have what Pr- morgo only knows what provoni remembers um, but they have some interesting philosophical conversations as they go back about um, the morality of their action. Should should outsiders come in and change the situation on Earth? Should change come from within? Um, what is what's motivating provoking All these things are, are going on in these conversations, and they now Morgo though is completely optimistic that he can handle the situation on Earth. That he can dominate um, the planet and and take care of the. The New Man and the Unusuals. So there's pretty much a guarantee of victory from Morgo and Bravoni's point of view. So it's going to make a lot of the, I guess, take a lot of the suspense out of the concerns of, of Graham and Barnes. and Because and, it does seem that their victory is assured. Uh, the victory of Bravoni and Morgo is assured. Um, but nonetheless, it's really fun to watch them try to make sense of their their the shifting realities of uh going on around them and how the state is trying to adapt to that so um chapter 12 um so we're back to graham and, and barnes and trying to you know manage the situation they get a second call from Provoni which uh confirms that he's coming back with help this time. That basically the second call doesn't just say he's coming back, but that he's coming back and he's successful, which means he's brought up from abroad. That's what his mission was. So Graham calls in an officer and tells him, basically, here are your orders. Go to Corden's office and snuff him to execute Cordon right away. And he goes and does it. And he watch, you know, Graham watches this whole thing happen on, on video. So it's a pretty uh, ignoble execution that takes place uh, under the cover of darkness. Um, now, we're, we're saddened to see this in a way because Graham had earlier come up with this wonderful plan to use uh, like an automaton of Corden or a, a kind of a android version of Corden to assassinate his wife and therefore discredit the Enderman movement. And he had this wonderful creative plan. It didn't go to anything because reality came in in the form of the return of Provoni, forcing Graham to move ahead with the yeah execution of Corden, but it's, um. that's that. That's the end of Corden. So no more Cordenite literature. I think he was like writing it through a microchip in his brain or something to the printing presses. After it's done, Graham then explains to Barnes why he had to, to do it, and then they continue on their old back-and-forth debate over the rules and, and how states should should govern and how hard they should be. And, and should they expand the prison camps? Should you arrest more Undermen? Should you, should you know, should it be tough on them? And then Barnes, on the one hand, does agree in being as hard as possible bombing illegalities. But he also believes in the law. And that's why he had a trouble with uh, the execution of Corden, which seemed to be outside the law. He says, we are a legal functioning government faced by sedition within and invasion from without. We're taking productive measures in both directions. Um, but at the same time, this leads him to hesitate to use these extra-legal means that uh, that Graham is more willing to, to use. He doesn't really, he's, he's arbitrary, and he's emotional, and he makes more gut reactions than Barnes, which is much more me- me- methodical in his decision-making. Uh, <clears throat> now, there's still a lot of anger uh, among these characters over provoni bringing in an outsider, like they, they don't see themselves really as, as tyrants. They see themselves as a functioning legal government that's just following the rules and that they are superior to the old men, so they're the best for them. They don't really understand fully why they're being resisted. And the fact that is bringing in an outsider is seen as a, a betrayal, so they're still pretty upset about that. Graham finally... Uh, you know, agrees that, okay, we need to attack the printing press. But he does insist that you don't bomb the printing press where he used to work at. That instead, they attack with troops and save as many lives as, as they can. So chapter 13 is another very short chapter, just a, a page or so, where Charlie and Nick, who are staying at that printing press, are captured by, by government forces. So chapter 14, we jump ahead to the interrogation of these captured prisoners. Um, Assuming a lot of these um, people working at the Pernit Press were pardoned, because that's what Graham wanted. He wanted the pardon of the people he worked with. But we assume many others were also questioned, and and Nick is just one of those. Nick has a new identity, by the way, given to him by the state. He is now 3XX24J, which is the, the address of the place that he became an underman. Right. So his previous identification was his home address. But once he becomes a criminal, he's he's identified by the place where he first was exposed to the under underman movement, which was that drug dealer's house. Um so Barnes is is Barnes is very interested in Nick because he was one of the first to be registered as a convert to the Underman movement after the announcement came that Corden was going to be executed. So he wants to know: is this going to be a sign that more and more people are going to join the movement? And since Nick is seen by us and by the state as the I guess the perfect everyman, then you know what he does will be symptomatic of how all people will act, right? So if there's a way to convince him not to support the undermen, that will work for everyone. So he he is the he's the average man. So um, Graham is watching these prisoners, and he's really fascinated by Charlie. So he's got an inst- instant sexual attraction, basically, to, to Charlie. Um, but the, the core idea here is that Nick will be the everyman that can judge the impact of Provoni's arrival, the execution of Corden, the bombing of the printing presses, or whatever. And um, more debate in this chapter, as well, on the need of rulers to be cruel and, and, and vicious. And he gives the example of, of, of popular leaders who are ineffectual. Uh, this is actually Graham saying it. Um, <clears throat> the description of a system by which authority is put and kept in the hands of those physically constructed as to have the ability to rule, it's a rule by the most competent, not the most popular. What is better, the most competent or the most popular? Millard Filmer was popular. So was Rutherford B. Hayes. So was Churchill. So was Lyons. But they were incompetent. That's just the whole point. Don't you see my point? Barnes then asks, ask, in what way was Churchill incompetent? And Graham replies, he advocated mass night bombings of residential areas of civilian populations instead of hitting key targets. He prolonged World War II with two extra years. End of quote. Now, um, yeah, so this was the conflict among the British and the Americans in bombing strategy. If you remember from your World War II history, that uh, Churchill basically wanted to save pilots. So he bombed the... Um, was it Yeah, it was the, the night bombings of of places that weren't defended by anti-aircraft guns. You know, it bombed Germany, but it wasn't really bombing critical areas. The United, the Americans wanted to to bomb during the day to be more accurate and to bomb factories, but that would have raised the casualties. I don't know if it prolonged the war to a year because of that decision, but, you know, Churchill wasn't brutal enough is the point. But also here is that there's a, a right to rule based on... Competence and ability, which is the whole foundation of this of this system, it's anti-democratic certainly that um, the undermen and and unusual should rule because they have greater capacity to to manage the system. Is your idea? They talk a little bit about Nick and his job as a tire regroover. Graham immediately hears about this profession and is horrified that it's legal, so he bans. He says he's going to ban tire Um and they talk a little bit about how to deal with the aliens, but they have no idea what the aliens are going to be or what their powers will be, so it's kind of a futile conversation. So, chapter 15. Uh, Nick is talking with the other prisoners and, you know, that have been arrested with them. Um, and this is his first day as an underman. So he's very unlucky. He gets arrested his first day as an underman. It's kind of funny. But um, uh, he's... His questioning begins, he's taken away, and a cop takes him to an interrogation room. And he's eventually taken to a representative from the council chamber, cha- chairman, Graham. But it's not Graham himself, it's like Graham's fl- fl- flunky he's talking to. And they just cover the preliminaries, you know, like the, the interview preliminaries before, before Graham or Barnes will come in. It's not, we got to wait until chapter 16 till we finally get him taken to Barnes and Graham for the the key conversation uh, where Barnes is going to try to figure out what it is about that converted Nick to the under underman movement and what will be the impact. How can they avoid an expansion of the movement with the arrival of Provoni? So during the interrogation, Nick admits to being an underman, despite this meaning he could be sent off to a forced labor camp on the moon or some place like that um, he eventually says that he wants to be sent to a camp with his family and that he says that there is coordinate literature at the house and that if they find it they can arrest his family and it's a very kind of disturbing moment where he he says like basically he, would, he does not want to be taken away from his family he does not want to lose his family in the midst of even if it means he has to be arrested with his family or his family has to be arrested alongside him so it's a bit troubling that, that he go, makes this. But this leads Barnes to realize something. It's that much more important than the movement is the fact that these families are kept together. And so he gets to the conclusion that maybe if we just shut down these forced labor camps, let these people return home, they won't support the movement. That this kind of putting people in prisons, locking them up, punishing them harshly for drinking or reading coordinate literature is backfired in the sense that it's made... You know, people devoted to a movement, but family is more important for most of these people. So you could bribe them basically with family. So um, while, after talking to Nick, Graham and Barnes debrief each other, and basically Barnes suggests closing down the internment camps. And, and they agree to do that. So that becomes the policy. All these millions of people on the moon or on other, you know, rec- reclamated areas, the Arctic, wherever, will be sent back to their, their homes. They tell this to Nick, and to see how he responds to it. Um, Barnes though doesn't like fully, you know, say, "Okay, whatever." I won't be an underman anymore. He actually points out that he sees the system beginning to fail. Um, he does say though that uh, he quote he says, "I think it's the most sensible, humane, rational decision a government can make. There would be a wave of happiness and relief that would cover the globe." But he doesn't believe it. He says, I can't believe it. The number of people in those camps run in the millions. It would be one of the most humane decisions by any government in history and it would never be forgotten. And so this, uh, you know, convinces Barnes and, and Graham that this is the pr- pr- correct choice. Um, but there's a bigger issue happening and that's the growing tension between the Undermen, or not the Undermen, the Unusuals and the the... the the unusuals and the new men. And so Barnes with Graham think about this change that probably coming or not, things are changing um, on earth. And that's because the new men have de- are developing that big ear project, which basically will create an equality uh, of, of, of knowledge. And so post-humanism, here's the point. posthumanism has created an advanced population of humans who, who are capable of, of controlling the state, dominating wealth and, and power. And that's the situation they're in. But the same tech intelligence that the new men can create with their big brains is able to then create technology that will equalize these things. So they've already done it to the unusuals, or they will be doing it to the unusuals with the Big Ear Project. Later on, they'll probably create a replacement for precog ability. What's going to stop them from creating a technology that will give uh, those uh, the capacity to think, you know, to do whatever new men do, their big brains, to all humans, right? You know, this system based on this inequality is not sustainable. And Barnes concludes the end result of this is essentially the old men will have to have to be given their their franchise back. Um, Quote, Listen to me, Willis. The old men must be given their franchise, but there's no use doing it if they simply lack, goddamn, simply lack the skills, knowledge, aptitudes that we have. We're not trying to falsify the test results. All all right, we do it now and then. We select as Pikeman and we did in the Citizen's 3XX24J case. That's an evil, but not the evil. The evil lay in constructing a test which you and I could pass, and he can't. We're not testing him what he can do, but what we can do. So he gets questions involving Bernhard's theory of actuality, which no old man can understand. We can't give him a bigger cerebral cortex. We can't give him a new man brain, but we can provide him with extra talents that can compensate for it, as in your case, in all unusual cases. "End quote." That process has been started uh, with the breakdown of the unusual's um, strong ability uh, by technology, but there's so much to unpack in this sentence in this this passage first is all is the tendency of states and bureaucracies to to become so complex that fewer and fewer people can manage it control it right that's certainly the case with certain technologies right um you know maybe a hundred years ago you know the infrastructure was such that you know most people sort of understand it or the state operated in such a way that people could understand it the military could operate in a way most people could understand it now 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 thanks to technology Fewer and fewer people actually can are capable of understanding the science, the technology behind things, which means you're going to get more and more power in those people who do can understand those things, right? And it basically makes things less de- systems less democratic. So that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is when people are in power, they tend to enforce, defend that power by by creating gatekeepers, right? Like. You know, for instance, in in China in the civil service exam, it was like the Confucian text, right? If you didn't study the Confucian text, you couldn't get in that. So if you had ideas that didn't conform with that, you failed the test, right? That's the case of anything, right? It's, you know, public school testing regimes all based on the same philosophy, it seems to me, right? That everyone has to pass the same test. And who writes that test, right? People who think math and science is the most important thing, right? The student who is good at music, you know, is gonna fail that test and our future is going to be not as bright perhaps as someone who you know who is good at math naturally. Um, the solution then is to is given here by Barnes is to test people on their capacity and make use of their talents, as well as equalizing access to those those abilities that we need to function in, in this world, right? You can't just close off talent to the hand to the six, ten thousand Newman and, and Unusuals. It has to be broad-based. And so Barn here basically sees the writing on the wall, right? Now, he's still going to defend the state. He's still supporting, smashing the printing presses and fighting off the uh, Provoni's return and all that. But he does, in this moment, see the, the future of, of their system and that it's not going to be sustained. Whether or not Provoni comes back, whether or not the, the, the undermen are successful at this moment, it, it's not going to matter. So it's a very important um, chapter, it seems to me, the interview with with Nick, in chapter 16. Uh, so, but that's all I'm going to talk about today. Um, in the next episode, I'll look at chapter 17 through through 21. So if you're reading along, take a take a look at those. Uh, in the meantime, give me your thoughts about our friends from Frolox 8, especially this this section of, of the story. Um, what do you think about the way the state is presented here? What do you think of the interplay between Graham and, and Barnes and their different philosophies of, of rule? Um, yeah, that's the heart of this section, I, I think. So, again, let me know what you think, and I'll be back next time with part three of my review of Our Friends from Full Box. Thanks, as always, for, uh, for listening. To feel these changes in me